This is Valerie Hamaker here at Latter-day Struggles. Grateful to have you here today. And I am just excited, even maybe perhaps more so than usual, because today I have a special guest to visit with me. I would like to introduce you all to Jason. Hello, Jason. Hi, Valerie. It's great to be with you. Yes, Jason is um, just a joy, has become a good friend of mine and of Nathan's, actually. He has been a part of one of my uh, ongoing small groups. And um, as a product of that relationship, he and I kind of came together and we decided that it would be a really great opportunity for you all listeners to learn a little bit more about who Jason is and his story. Jason is, I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself a little bit, but just to sort of preface Jason's introduction, Jason is a former professor from Brigham Young University. And he has a very, very interesting story. I say former, and that's an important component of this conversation because he's going to walk us through um, a beautiful story of strength and determination um, and courage and um, talk us through how he became who he is, what he's doing, and um, his current um, situation, ha um, ha it, being an instructor at a different university. And we're going to talk about sort of how that evolved. Jason, can I just turn the mic over to you and have you kind of Talk a little bit about, if you would, not about the current um, topic, the larger topic, well, not about the topic of your BYU employment, but let's just learn about you as a human being. Talk about that for a minute, if you would. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for that introduction, and it's great to, to be with you. Um, I, I grew up, I'm originally from Texas, and um, when I was 15 years old, I, I came in contact with the church and joined the church um, in the middle of high school. And um, that decision impacted my whole life. It still continues to do it. And it was wonderful. It was like love at first sight with the church. It felt so great. And, and I had a powerful experience and immediately attended seminary and knew that I wanted to, to serve a mission. And um, you mentioned that I, I, I was a professor at BYU. I'm a unique kind of professor because I'm a music professor. I play the mm -hmm. trumpet. And um, so as a musician, I wanted to go to, to college to study music and become a professional musician. And I knew that to do that, most schools won't let you go on a mission. Music is, is kind of a thing where you have to be doing it all the time, almost like sports. And so if you stop, um, the general thinking is that it's going to set you back. But I knew that if I went to BYU, I would have the opportunity to um, defer and go on a mission. And as the only member in my family, I, I wanted to be in an environment where I was surrounded by people that believed the same as, as me and that had those same values. So BYU very quickly became a place that I wanted to go. And so I went there as a student um, for one year and then served a mission in Brazil and came back and um, then went forward with my life and um, ended up becoming a professional musician. And as the more I I, I performed, the more I realized I really wanted to teach. And so I got my doctorate and, and wanted to do um, college level trumpet teaching, which that, that actually is a job that you can do. <laughs> and um, it's, it's pretty great. And um, in that time, all those years of school and, and, and teaching and performing, um, I was very active and faithful in the church. And um, that led to eventually getting a job at BYU. And so um, I have been a member of the church for 25 years now and am married and we have four kids 
and have raised our family in the church. And um, it's been a wonderful life. I'm, I'm so happy and grateful for that. And, you know, my experience at BYU changed my life too. There, there's so many opportunities for students there spiritually and also um, the way that BYU is run. When I was a student there, it was before they had their current focus on experiential learning, mm-hmm. but they still did that. As music students, we were able to go on tours all over the world and travel and, and learn. And that really impacted um, my professional career, but also my, my spirit. And um, I, I loved it. I, I felt like my time at BYU as a student was just the best time mm-hmm. ever. I made friends that, you know, are still very dear friends. And that's where I met my wife. And um, it was, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a background. Thank you, Jason. I I'm resonating with you so strongly in a few, a few of these areas. I, for one, am not a musician, <laughs> but I sure can appreciate a good musician. There are a couple in my family. And also I'm really connecting with your personal experience as a student at BYU. And I know, you know, people have various experiences across the spectrum and yet I'm with you. I was a student in the mid, I guess in the, in the early nineties. And um, it was a it was a wonderful experience for me. I have incredibly fond memories of my time at BYU. And as I've reflected, I don't know if I've mentioned this too much on the podcast, but I, well, I have mentioned a number of times that I was and have been, you know, spent the vast majority of my life in, in Mormon orthodoxy. And so in some ways that has served me in my current position and in, in the current work that I do, because I really do understand those folks. And back in my BYU days, I was very much one of them. I was, I was a good fit for the university. I even remember in university wards, there was a part of church on Sunday that was called, um, it was the church protocol moment of the week where it was like, this is how you Mormon write. <laughs> Coming right from, you know, BYU. And um, some other, another kind of funny thing that I've reflected on in my own growth from my BYU experience, um, much to my sorrow, honestly, is that I was... I was in the English department in 1993 during the um, period of the September 6th experience. I could have had Eugene England as my professor, and I just wasn't in the loop enough to even really know what was going on there and um, to be blessed by some of those incredible pioneers in progressive Mormonism. I wasn't spiritually and psychologically mature enough to be ready to be a part of that scene while I was literally in the same building at the same time as these amazing things were happening. Um, and then, and, and then the paradox is that I do remember in an English class at BYU, I wrote a paper on Jesus as a feminist. And I went to the BYU library and a lot of my research came out of the sunstone and the dialogue. And I was, so anyhow, my, my BYU education was a little bit strange. And, um, and so I was kind of, I had my one foot there, but I was a little bit too insecure to really, um, expand that part of my identity. It took me a lot more years. And so here you and I are these, um, young students at BYU, you go on to actually become a professor there, which is, I think kind of a a big deal, um, sort of embodying this idea of like what the, you know, the, the white heterosexual Mormon man (laughs) priesthood holding and you're a convert to boot. Right. And so in some ways I can only imagine that having transitioned from a student and then moved and moving on into professorship 
at BYU. Um, that was, was that a pretty big deal to you? Was that kind of exciting for you at the time? Um, yeah, it was. Um, and also it, it, it wasn't my, we, we, my wife and I both grew up outside of Utah uh-huh. and we loved our time at BYU so much, but we also kind of like felt some of the Utah bubble culture. Right. And we always felt we, we would like to come back and visit here, but never live here. And so, um, I, I kind of knew that there was a possibility that this could happen based on when, when my teacher at BYU was eventually going to retire and, because BYU has such really specific hiring practices, they keep track of their alumni really well, especially ones that might go on in the in their fields to eventually possibly come back. So they, I was always in contact with people at BYU the whole time I was out. And as I kind of, my, as my career grew, and then also as my service in the church kind of matched that, mm-hmm. I think that it got more and more where they were wanting to really pursue that option. And so we, I was working in Texas at, at, at one of the best music schools in the country. And it was kind of like really close to where my family was. And we were just set. We were like, we're going to be here forever. Mm. And then I got a call from BYU and they said, Hey, your teacher's retiring and we want you to apply for the job. And I remember just thinking, no way, not a chance. Mm. And there was, and I was at that time still firmly, I mean, as orthodox as you could be, um, but also kind of felt like, why do we don't want to go back there? Gotcha. And then I had experiences that really softened my heart. And then it became really clear that we were supposed to go. And um, it was amazing and wonderful and very powerful experience going through that process. So at, at first, initially, I was thinking, you know, I I don't want to go. I'm, I'm really happy where I am. And then had these experiences and thought, well, maybe the Lord knows different. Mm-hmm. Right. And he softened my heart and, and allowed me to have experiences that really made it seem like this is where we should go, not just for me, but that it would be beneficial for our family. And so we decided as a family to try. And then when the interview process worked out and, and got the job, it just was, it was, it, I was actually so excited. It was amazing. Um, I think, you know, professionally people in my career, in my career kind of thought, what are you doing? Like you're working, you got one of the best jobs in the country for what you do. And BYU, we know about BYU because of like football and because of some of the the issues that that BYU is not well, like that they're known for, but not in a positive way. Right. Why are you doing that? Um, but it was kind of like to be able to go back to my people. And I felt like BYU's impact on me as a student changed my life. And the chance to get to help students now was just, that was kind of like what sealed the deal, a chance to be there and to help students have those experiences like we had when we were students was yeah. uh, just amazing. So um, anyway, that's kind of like a little bit of how it worked out. So it was, we kind of went kicking and screaming, but then we got there, it was amazing. Well, and so. I, I'm, I'm struck by having, um, having understood, and we're going to talk a lot more about how it sort of unfolded, right? Yeah. That um, it certainly unfolded differently than you probably anticipated. In other words, you may have felt, in fact, I mean, I'm not doubting for a second that you felt impressed that this was in fact, part of your journey that was, was um, intended for your growth and development. It, I'm, I'm assuming that as you have reflected back on it, it was probably in fact, incredibly informative and instructed in your growth and development in completely different ways, maybe than you have thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. let's jump into that part of it. Let's go ahead and start talking about as you started engaging in your actual um, responsibilities with the students at BYU, 
let's just open up. Well, let me, let me ask you this first, Jason, how long were you there? How many years? Um, I was there for only four years. I went in 2018 is when I started. Okay. And it, it, I think it can be viewed easily in like two halves. It was pre-COVID and post-COVID. And that's kind of a distinctive thing. But yeah, um, I I taught trumpet at BYU in the School of Music. And I can't think of a place that's more ideal to work than than there. The the people on the ground, my colleagues were just wonderful. And I never had felt so supported and so seen and so understood. And that continues to this day. The, The people at BYU are the best part of BYU. Mm-hmm. The faculty, the staff, and the students, every the people in general are just amazing. And I still feel that way. Yeah. And so I went into this environment of, of total support. And a lot of the, there, there was a lot of change in the faculty from when I was a student to joining the faculty, but still there was probably half that were there when I was a student and remembered me and knew me. And so wow. there, was some, there were a lot of these moments where they were kind of like, that I had just gone on and done good and I came back and, and they were really proud of, of that. Um, and that, that makes you feel so good and so wanted. And they were really, really genuinely good about that with me and with other people. So it was this great thing. I love my students there. The hardest thing about choosing to leave was leaving them. Um, when, when you do music, it's, it's, it's a different kind of teaching than like if you, you're an English professor where you might have these classes that are really, really large. Everything that I do is basically one-on-one. Wow. So there's a lot of opportunities for mentoring and really getting to know students and helping them with their career. And so it was really fulfilling. I, I had the best experiences with, with every aspect of it. Um, and, the, you know, the longer that I, I was there, um, you start to kind of see when you're working for the church um, that there are these amazing benefits that come with it. And then there's also some challenges that you maybe didn't see before. And yes. I think this happens, I've heard with a lot of people that work for the church in various ways, but you know, it's, it's when you kind of see how the sausage is made, sometimes it's not the prettiest. Well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad you're, you're bringing that up because I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here listening and taking in what you're saying and thinking to myself, I'm sure the listeners are thinking the same thing I am, which is okay. Wow. He's painting a really beautiful picture of an employment situation. Why in the world did he leave? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's, right. it's not, it's not quite adding up yet. We don't know quite yet how things started to fall apart. So let's go ahead and just talk a little bit about based on your narrative of how rewarding it was coming back and like paying forward and you were the student and now you're the professor and these, these lovely um, students um, that come through just eager and open. And I, I know we are, uh, we haven't been into the brass instruments, but I've got a couple musicians in my, in my family who've gone through some of the BYU summer camps and boy, we Mormons sure know how to you know, create a musician. That's one of our strong suits. Right. And so the, the level of, um, of musical talent, I'm sure you were privileged to work with was probably something else. Yeah. And so, mm. no, it was, it was wonderful. Um, but it was almost like the minute that we got there, there were started, there started to be some things that I did not expect Uh, everything with, with BYU had been going like amazing. And there were little moments that, that started to kind of like crack some things. Soon after I got there, um, the church reversed their position. There was the famous, you know, the 2015 decision that they made about um, LGBT people and their children. And, and that, 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 I remember when that happened and me being confused about that, but I was 
in Texas at the time and in church leadership at the time and fully Orthodox. And it didn't shake me, but then I was at BYU when they reversed it. Mm-hmm. And then there was, there was a, shortly after it was reversed, they modified the honor code. And there was about a two week period when LGBT students were kind of able to be authentic and out yes. and it was beautiful. And then the way that the church handled that, where they switched back was brutal. Can you that can was, we slow that down? Let's, let's stay yeah. there for a second, Jason, because I feel like yeah. that's a big one. Um, you were on the ground when that, when that happened. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming most of our listeners under, remember this, but for, for about two weeks, there was a shift in policy that, um, allowed, um, our LGBTQ plus loved ones and friends to, um, to, to be treated equally under the honor yeah. code and under sort of, I guess you could say the law of chastity. <laughs> Is that yeah. fair? Um, yeah. and, um, it felt in some ways, and I wasn't even there, but I mean, I was witnessing from afar and I had my, I was, I had my eye on it and my memory. I think I, I think I may have even had a, one of my kids out in Provo at, um, at, at UVU. And the idea there was, um, that maybe there's some movement, um, towards something that looks more like inclusion and openness. And the kids were feeling safe to, to self-express. And I loved how you just said authenticity that some of these kids who had been, um, by, by necessity had been needing to hide parts of their authentic, um, identities were able, uh, to, to self-express and it only lasted two weeks. Yeah. What was that like for you as a professor with, I'm sure some of your students, um, in the fine arts. Um, were gender and sexual minorities. So talk about that if you would. Yeah, it broke my heart. I I, I mean, like, as you just mentioned, when when you're in the arts and in music, um, I I think there are LGBT people all over. I mean, they're just part of, they're they're beautiful and they're in every aspect of our society. And that's wonderful. And in music, there's a, I felt like I had this weird experience where I have all these people that I love that are LGBT. And when you know people and listen to their stories, you just, you fall in love with them in this like beautiful way, not in necessarily real romantic way, but just as people, you just love them. And then you hear conference talks that don't match the, the lived experience that I've had with those people. And so, you know, we have, we have students at, at BYU that are LGBT um, and we love them. And they struggle to feel safe. And so for this, this little period, it felt like, oh my gosh, this is a great thing. Mm. They're being seen. And, and then when this happened, when, when they changed the policy and then did it in a letter and it was just kind of harsh, yeah. um, these students were crushed and they felt so betrayed because they felt like it was actually safe to do that. They had posted on social media mm-hmm. and come out to their families and felt like they're not going to be kicked out of school. And then to have that ripped out, not only did the policy change hurt, but the fact that they were like finally feeling free to be on that campus and be happy who they were. And they were receiving love from a lot of supportive faculty members. And then it meant all the faculty members that came out in support of them and them and their, you know, what's going to happen? Is their roommate going to turn them in? Is their teacher going to turn them in? Are their parents going to turn them in? It was really um, awful. You know, I I don't think that it was intentional to have that happen. I don't think um, that the church was like thinking that way or or perceiving that. Although 
with prophets and apostles, you can, I think, hopefully should be able to see things like that, see ahead. But it was, it was hard. And I remember for me, it was the first time that I ever remember feeling angry at the church. Sure. I thought it was wrong. Even if it wasn't intentional, the way that it happened and then the way that it impacted these students was awful. And it was so confusing to me wow. how I could be there and also, and be that upset and hurt. Yeah. And then I, and then my instincts were to protect and be with students that were struggling, not to defend the church. And that was the first time in my life that that had flipped. Yes. Well, and it, it sounds, was, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just no, going to no. say you, you, you described a minute ago, something that is profound is that it's one thing to hear um, hovering 300 feet above something about a principle or a doctrine or a policy or a, a, an idea, a theological idea. It's a different thing, Jason when you're spending hours with a, with an adolescent or young adult and you look into their eyes and you, you come to know and love them. And you think to yourself, this is not adding up. This is not lining up with, with the theology that feels cold and unloving and, and misunderstanding of the nature of love as you're experiencing it on the ground, in the room, in the classroom with these, with these kids. And so your, your experience of being there present as this whiplash like experience happened, I would imagine as much as it probably brought up not only anger, but probably um, a deep sense of your own um, evolving spirituality. Like, what does this mean for me as a human being needing to navigate deep issues of truth and of love? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. At, at that point, I, um, I I didn't have these cracks in in the foundation that that came a little bit after. But this was the like one of the first pivotal things that did, because what happened is you know before I was talking about how BYU is this amazing place, and I still feel that that's the case. Mm. But it's also a place where the institution um, hangs on top of everything, yeah. right? And so I started to see. Um, things that look like what I would read about in Matthew 23 about Pharisees. That happens a lot. It's not the ground level. It's the up the chain. And so you see policies and institutional choices that don't match what we're, what the mission is where we're supposed to be loving and where the, 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 the policies and the administrative choices are done in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, It's all institutional and um, it's not, it didn't match the the Christ-like actions and and attitudes and um, choices that that we're we were trying to be making on the ground level, yes. and so it it's, it started to highlight some of 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 that that was a challenge for me. You're you're um, describing Jason this idea that you wanted to embody all of the beauty and the goodness that you had learned yeah. through your history. Um, as a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all of the good, beautiful things about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ and love and kindness and goodness and compassion and sharing your gifts. And so you were having opportunities to do that when it wasn't um, mediated um, through through the institution. And yet what I think you're trying to describe to me that I'm learning from you on is that while what one would hope is that the institution would be your greatest reinforcer of please do these things that help these kids 
and you were starting to notice, and this was maybe like your first experience, um, that the one we're describing with the two week whiplash experience is it was like, wait a minute, this is making it harder because I'm feeling in some ways, like I'm having to make a strange and disorienting choice between loving people and um, sort of backing an institutional choice that doesn't actually feel like it's aligning itself with what I have learned as a Christian person. And so it starts to feel very, very um, disorienting and uncomfortable because on the one hand, you want to be um, loyal to your employer. I mean, I think that's something that is, you know, not fundamentally a wrong thing to want to do when you, when you, when any of us take a job, you know, I think implicit in that is I will, I'm, I'm on board with, you know, the purpose and vision of this organization, whatever it is. And I think you entered into that in good faith. And, and yet then these, these cracks started, these things started happening that started feeling really disorienting to you because they were actually going against the grain of, of who you are as, as a, as a Christ believing, loving, embodying human being. And that's, that's really hard. That's painful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, it still is painful. It, and you know, it, it, right now, having been through it, it's easy to kind of look back and and kind of see things, but this was happening on a slow Mm. basis. And kind of from that moment, it almost seemed to me that there was this widening gap between the students. um, I was supposed to be treating the students Christ-like, but it really felt like institutionally, the institution wanted to be treated Christ-like instead of the students. They focus on the students and want the students to be treated that way. But with the loyalty that we had to have to some of these difficult choices that the institution was making, it felt like you had to choose that over. We had to be Christ-like to the church instead of Christ-like to the people. So let me, and, let me, you know, let me see if I, can you, can you put pot, like slow that down a little bit and help yeah. me understand. Like, in other words, if you had, let me, I'm going to describe what I think you said, and then you clarify. Okay. Yeah. So you're describing that. Well, I think the, the thing that's so sad about what you're saying is that it, it ought to be that you were able to do both because that's your, what I wanted to, your yeah. foundation was the same in either direction. If everyone is aligned and, and really if our foundation is love, then it wouldn't need to be a choice. Being Christ-like to the students is just an extension of what you thought would be wanted of the institution. But what you were describing, I think what I'm hearing you say is that it felt in some ways um, that because of some of these um, theological elements, you were being asked to make a choice that in essence was backing and standing behind some of these principles that didn't feel loving, but you were supposed to sort of back those out of loyalty and trust. But in so doing, it was actually unloving and hurting your students who you actually probably were learning. You had the highest loyalty to because you looked them in the eyes every day and you genuinely loved these kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. I, okay. And, you know, I, I should be clear about a couple things. Sure. When I talk about students that struggle, it's not every student. The vast majority of students fit like you and I did when sure. we were there, right? Yeah. And they don't have that struggle. But any student that's on the margin feels it different than somebody that's in the middle. So if we have any students that are LGBT or a lot of female students or um, students of color, um, their experience about at BYU and in the church is different than what mine is. Even though I was a little bit different as a convert, I was still, like you said, 
a, a white male active that held leadership callings, you know, and was able to like be who I was supposed to be. And then at BYU, it works even better, you know? <laughs> and I would say that BYU wants and teaches and sets it up so that you can be Christ-like to all your students. It's just that there are some policies that make it when you interact with some of those small groups, the marginalized ones, it's really hard to be Christ-like to those students while also being Christ-like to the policies. And yeah. so it's not in general, it's, it's not like the sweeping thing, but it's, you know, it's the, when you leave the 99, it's the one person that's out there. That person has a really, really hard experience. Well, and it's hard for people to faculty to be confident enough to reach out in an empathetic way that's authentic and not be fearful that someone might not see it as activism or, you know, going against the brethren. Well, which I think yeah. it's not, but yeah, no. And you describe several things that you just said. I want to kind of circle back and talk a little bit about it's the true measure of Christ. Like religion is actually, in fact, how we treat the marginalized. Yeah. I, and you as sort of, um, you know, we were, we were in the orthodoxy. We were, we were the 99. We didn't need that kind of, watch care. I mean, I think we all need it to some degree, but, but because we were sort of, um, in, in the orthodoxy, we're white, we're not on the margins. That's not that those are not the ones that need as much nurturing and care. It's the, it's the, it's the kids that are on the margins that needed it the most. And so for the, for the institution to not have an awareness that those are the ones it's, it's our treating of, of the least of these. And I mean by that, those who have the greatest needs, who are the most insecure. And those who, um, who are looking around wondering, am I okay? Am I safe? Am I accepted? Am I worthy? Those are the ones that, that, that Jesus Christ would have us go be with. And so when you felt, I'm going to say something, respond to something else you said a second ago, when you felt that by doing that, there might be institutional consequences, that starts to make the brain feel a little bit out of sorts, because yeah. that's actually how you were, like the best of what you have learned in terms of your, your embodied Christianity was teaching you to reach out and increase in love with these kids and young adults, and you were actually um, encouraged in some ways um, to not do that and punished, or there were con possible consequences for being an ally, for taking care of some of these kids, because um, it, like you said too, it, I, I found that really fascinating. You said, you know, heaven forbid we be perceived as activists. And to me, that, yeah. that gives me a lot of pause because uh, you can switch out the word activists for advocates. We want to be advocates for those who might feel like they're on the margins and that they have these needs to be um, included and, um, and sort of chosen. How do I say this? We need to be extra careful in loving them well because others are not going to, especially when we're in a culture and in an institution um, that has um, internalized a lot of phobic behaviors towards those that are not like us. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say, too, I can't think of a single instance, I'm sure there are some, where anybody that worked for BYU wasn't Christ-like in that way. Wow. I feel like everybody's heart 
was in the right place. It just felt like we were torn between like doing that and then also institutional policies that come down. And like, so I think the higher that you go up at BYU, the more that, 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 that's gotta be a really hard place to be. Mm. You know, I, I feel like the president of BYU, Kevin Worthen is a great man and he is a great leader and full of so much love, but his next step above him are the brethren. And so he's trying to like please them and do what they say. Well, at the same time, he demonstrated so much love and Christ-like care in his words and deeds that it, 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 the cognitive dissonance comes because you're like on the ground, this is a wonderful place where all of these people are loved. And I think in a general sense, they are, yeah. you have some members that are in different places spiritually in terms of orthodoxy, where they, it's hard for them to like really love an LGBT student, but I think their heart is that they want to, Sure. but then there are certain things that happen like that. And then other things down the road that, that just made it hard. Well, so let's that go was, there. Let's go there yeah. if we can. Let's go back. Let's move on to, you said there were some other things I know you were talking about sort of, um, a variety of, of like some developments that evolved that um, slowly but surely um, moved you towards the the need to um, distance yourself from from church employment. So let's go ahead and let's just go, take us take us to the next step. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I I painted this beautiful picture of BYU, and that picture never went away. Mm. My experience there was great. And I felt like when I go back to those promptings I had to go, it felt like that's where the Lord wanted me to like do, to be me was at BYU. That was really the only place in Utah that I felt like I was me. Um, when in our own, my own going to church, it was the first time that I ever struggled there. And, you know, I, it was interesting. I, I realized that as, as a white man in the church, I have a lot of privilege that I didn't understand until this time. And so the only way I think that I felt marginalized is because I was a trumpet player. The church had these ridiculous policies about playing brass music in church. And so um, the, the first week that we were there, we were walking in our neighborhood and met um, our bishop and stake president who were members. And as we were introducing ourselves, um, you know, I said, I teach at BYU. And, and they said, what do you teach? And I said, music, I play the trumpet. Well, their wives asked their husbands, we've got to have him play in church. And then they both kind of froze. And we're like, we can't do that. And that was cool. Like I, I get how this has, it's always been that way. I've had some weird. leaders that have invited yeah. me to play, but as it went on, their wives and other people asked for me to play all the time and they wouldn't let me play so much so that it got awkward. Right. And so here I am, I teach at BYU. I play in the orchestra at Temple Square. You could say I'm one of God's trumpet players, at least in the church. And I can't even play at church. But you could have some kid that sounds awful on a flute or violin get up there and like, there's no spirit. So anyway, it, it was the first time I ever, I know it sounds so dumb and so silly, but it was, I think, God's way of like touching my heart and being like, hey, you're marginalized now. And I had never felt that way in church. And so it, that started to like make me struggle with that. And the way that it worked out, I think was wonderful is COVID happened. And I have, I started to like have time to think about all my friends that have left the church and it didn't feel good to cast them out. So I stayed by their side. I've, you know, over the, the years before that, I probably wouldn't have conversations because of the learned fears of, oh, it's going to like infect me or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I decided to like, listen, you know, there's wow. that great podcast, Listen, Learn and Love mm -hmm. by Osler. Yep. And you, you, I listened to that podcast a lot and some other podcasts where I would go on walks every day. 
during COVID is like, okay, I can't do anything, but I can go and walk. And so I started listening to these stories and having conversations with my LGBT friends in and out of the church. And I started to realize that these like petty feelings that I was feeling about not playing in church, I could connect in a different way that I never could before to their stories that were way more profound and hard. Right. And so I started to see people differently and developed empathy that I didn't know that I had. And I really felt like I was connecting with the savior in a way that I didn't before. I feel like I really felt safe and security in the black and white of church, of the doctrine, of the way that it's administered in the institution. Um, and I had, you know, I, I, I was a bishop before coming out there. I really knew institutional organization. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And uh -huh. here I thought, man, these are God's children too. And their stories are different than mine. And they're also valid. Well, then soon after that, there was the, the George Floyd thing that happened. And then the U.S. political system going through what it went through, yeah. you know, um, in that election or it, it gearing up for the election. And then January 6th happened. And all of a sudden I thought, man, I am changing. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's not because I'm like learning all this stuff. Well, I was learning stuff as part of that process. You I, I started to learn about truth claims of the church mm -hmm. and started critically thinking. But what really changed my heart was seeing the good in all people and that people and really learning to truly believe that people are worthy just as they are mm -hmm. and believing people where they are. And, you know, I think that even though I love my LGBT friends before this, I was just so slow. And now I thought, now I just believe that it's not an accident. It's not a choice. It's who they are. And that's how God created them. And that's beautiful. And that also doesn't make sense with what I was taught. Right. So anyway, a lot of that growth happened during COVID. And when we got back um, in person, I was so different. I saw the institution in a different way and I had grown and, I didn't feel like I did before. When I went to BYU, I thought, you know, not in like a prideful way as it's going to sound, but I thought nobody's built their house more upon the rock than me. Mm -hmm. Like I, <laughs> yes. immovable and unshakable, my testimony. And I feel like my testimony changed a little bit. It was less about the institution. And I saw fallibility in leaders that we say that they're human, but we treat them in, as infallible, right? And... I, I started teaching again in person and I didn't feel authentic anymore. It was really hard for me to like, I couldn't back up those institutional policies. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in that time, you know, from when um, the honor code changed and we came back from COVID, um, Elder Holland came and gave a, a talk. It's really infamous now. It's uh, yeah. it talked about muskets and I was there. I got an award at that meeting. And so I was there 20 rows in front of them. And the longer that he spoke, the more that I wanted to throw up. And I was crying and mad and hurt. And I loved Elder Holland more than anybody. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking it devastated me. It crushed me. And I, I left and I walked out with two of my colleagues that were teachers from when I was a student. They're mentors, people, men that I love. And they said, that was the best talk that's been given at BYU in 25 years. Oh. And inside my head, I thought, that's the worst talk I've ever heard at BYU. And I've never been more ashamed to be at BYU. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so different. Because I think prior to COVID, I probably would have said the same thing as them, right? And 
it shook me. And I, I, he, he gets to a part where he talks in that, that talk about that BYU is going to stay the same and be different, even if it means we lose credibility or we lose our, our accreditations. And I thought BYU is not going to be here. There's a mass exodus from the church. They're making these horrible stands that are not going to work. Even if you say that they're staying faithful to the doctrine publicly, like in society, it's not going to work. They're going to drive BYU to a joke. I'm not going to waste my whole career doing mental gymnastics and trying to go into lessons. And, and I, I felt like I started having to like have a, a live a double life, right? Where I'd go to campus and I would say the right things and, and I would still love my students and help them. But inside I, it was changing and, and that was hard for me. And integrity is a big thing. And I just felt like I didn't believe. And I knew that there were people that were concerned about faculty members of BYU mm. remaking their students you know, their children leave the church. That was not me. I never said anything publicly to anybody. I just kind of suffered in silence for, mm. for two years. Wow. But I, 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 I thought, I can't do this. It was like killing me inside. And so much so that I was just going to either quit or I had to find another job because I just couldn't stand for what it had become. And I know I'm skipping lots of steps, but, but that's kind of what happened. And then thankfully, I was able to get another job. And so um, we've moved and now I'm in the first year teaching in an era like really, if not the best, one of the best institutions for what I do in the whole country. Mm. And it's a place that has, I can separate my faith and my job. Yeah. Um, and I can deal with, not deal with, I can teach and love all my students how they are. And that's never even an issue. Wow. And so that's a, that's a great thing. So Elder Holland's talk really kind of broke me. And then the thing that really was the camels, that broke the camels back that made it so I wanted to find another job was they they did a new temple recommend policy for CES employees. And it just felt so wrong to me that having a double standard between people that work in CES or at BYU and regular members of the church, there's different temple recommend questions and you have to give up your confidentiality. Like, so an employee that works for the church can call your bishop and say, is Jason doing this, this, and this, and this, or okay. And if the bishop says no, it can trigger this thing that no matter if I have tenure, I can be fired. That's terrible. Well, the th problem is what, why on earth everything's set up that if I'm struggling, I should be able to go to my bishop and work through the atonement and through that process. But if I know going to the bishop is going to mean that he's, I have to waive my confidentiality of talking to him and he can talk to a church employee and tell them something and it's going to cost me my job. Why on earth would I or anybody else do that? So in our, in our quest to make sure that our faculty are strong, we take away the incentive for them to like actually repent and get better if there's a problem. Yeah. And so um, anyway, I felt that I just had to go because I didn't want to lie. I didn't want to, I, I, I have colleagues that are able to navigate that, but I just wasn't. And so I felt like I needed to have a, my job and my faith be separated. Wow. And so it breaks my heart because I love BYU. I still do. Yeah. And I also am so hurt by BYU and it's sad to see how it's going. And so I, I also know that there's narratives. People would listen to me sell, tell that story and they would say, man, they're really glad that I'm gone because I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing and mm -hmm. don't believe anymore. And, and, and that's okay. But I think uh, there might be other people that, that are there that can understand it too. And I just know for me, I needed to be in a healthier situation. Yes. But it, it broke my heart. And for a, a school that, that gave so much to me, and I went back and I did four years there, 
right? So maybe I can say it paid itself the heck. I did four really good years, but um, it makes me sad for my students that are still there. Um, None of them, none of my colleagues really know any of this. So I guess if they ever stumble upon your podcast, it's, they're going to be really disappointed, but mm. it's the truth. And, and I, I, at the time I felt like I was all alone and that was what made it so hard. And since then I've realized that there's a lot of people that share my feelings and many have left BYU. And then there's a lot that for many reasons can't leave. And it makes me sad that they're struggling yeah. um, in that way. Just, Jason, there's like, a that was a lot of information. No, no, no. I, I didn't actually stop you because you were, uh, what you were sharing was, was profound on so many various levels. I, I'm going to start, I'm going to try to circle us back and talk about a couple things. Um, but I, the one that matters the most to me is what you just said just a few seconds ago, Jason, when you say, if somebody hears this, they may be disappointed. I'm going to push back on that. And I'm going to say that I, I mean, is that possible? Sure. But is there a possibility too, Jason, that what you're actually doing is showing such deep integrity that you're giving somebody the permission to actually grow and transform and evolve because of your example of integrity, because of how you have not only chosen to do what felt congruent and Christ-like to you, but that you're also having the courage to speak about it. And by nature of the fact that you're speaking about it means in some ways that you are most definitely in the process of healing from it. How does that feel, Jason? That feels hopeful. I would hope that people could see it that way. I I feel like my decision to find another job, genuinely my heart was about trying to do the right thing for me and for BYU. Yeah. It's I don't think it's any good to have somebody that's that's a really good teacher that that does all this stuff but doesn't fit the mission anymore. Yeah. Right? Like it, it's better that I'm not there. It's better they hire someone else that, that is in that place that can do that. And I can still help kids in a, in a different way than just as a, you know, in, on the church side. Yeah. But, well, mm. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're the beginnings of what I would consider almost like how you moved from this. So you had this experience. The first one was the two week policy, but then it sounds like, um, the other, you really started moving quickly on your evolution uh, when COVID started. And I'm really intrigued by that, that first, my, my first thought was, as I was listening to you is that my goodness, is God not a micromanager? Like how wonderful is it that God gave you a very, very customized experience of what it felt like to be on the margins so that you could have a heart expanding experience to see more deeply. And your being a trumpet player was your very customized and unique way to see like, oh, wait, this is what it feels like to be, to be someone um, different. And it also gave you the courage to start actually growing and evolving in your own ability to experience personal authority and psychological agency where you started to, to, to question whether is, what is my faith? What is my religion? What is it that I feel and believe? And can I, for the first time, perhaps take ownership for it and have the incredible courage to step out of the confines of what the institution says I am to believe. 
And you talked also about how um, comfortable it is. I mean, orthodoxy is by, by definition, it is a stage of faith development that we often, most of us walk through. It is a part of our growth and it is there to manage our own anxieties, to keep things simple and clean and have someone to tell me how to believe and how to live and what to do and how to get to heaven in sort of a really tidy way. And then inevitably, if we're lucky enough, something happens in life and we are triggered into a, a growth expansion experience. And for you, it was this trumpet playing thing. And then it sort of seems like the snowball started rolling and your eyes, it's like multiple layers of blinders started falling off. Oh, like one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I know for a fact from my own experience and from the work that I do with so many people that this in and of itself, although it is an incredible miracle unfolding at first, it doesn't feel like that. It is, it's, it's terrifying. It's, it shakes, it shakes us to the core because what we thought to be our reality is suddenly becoming deeply challenged on multiple levels. And then we have to re-equilibrate ourselves and figure out, okay, what am I going to do now? And it, I think for you was, um, I think there was even perhaps an extra layer of anxiety attached to this because what many people go through in faith crisis that then becomes that faith expansion is not connected to their employment. That's a whole other layer. And it sounds like in some ways you had to um, manage that kind of dissonance. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about this. I wonder, was there a period of time where you thought, okay, maybe I can juggle this thing. Maybe I can make it work. Was that, was that a part of your, your evolution, your process, trying to figure out how you could sort of manage both um, authentically? Did that happen to you? Yeah. Yeah, it, it did. It, it was for about two years trying to do it. And um, I, I, I want to continue on that, but I want, can I go back to something you just said? Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it, you, it kind of felt like, this is what my experience was like. It felt like God, through the spirit, I felt like I was supposed to go to BYU. And that when I went there, he also gave me other experiences that were unlike any that I've ever had. Yeah. And so I felt like going down this path and the snowball going down the mountain. Yep. Um, my rough stone rolling was started by God, right? By these experiences that I had. And so it was so confusing to me for a long time of thinking the answers that I'm getting don't match what I used to get. And the things that I'm learning don't match what I used to get. They feel so much more Christ-like and I feel so much more connected to the savior, but I feel so much more distant from the church. And um, it was really hard trying to like force that square peg in that round hole for so long. And I, just recently, I've been thinking, you know, I, I was, for the first 15 years of my life, I was not a member of the church and then had this experience that God directed me to this. And I thought, can God be directing me away from it or like in a different way? Or I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I do feel like God's in it. And I, I for most of those two to three years, felt like I was so far from God it's despite never praying more and fasting more and studying more and learning more, I could not find him until the opportunity to come to my new job. I, I had this a spiritual experience like the old ones, but it was after a three-year dark period. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I feel like God's still in charge of it. And I'm giving myself permission to like put down, like let my walls down and just try to learn. Um, and it's, it's feeling better. But 
going back to what you said about living, trying to make both of them work. Yeah, that's that was the the hardest thing ever. But it didn't it didn't work. It felt like I was totally divided inside. And, you know, I, I will say that probably my fears of losing my job because of my beliefs were completely irrational. My performance in my job kept, kept getting better and better. Mm. And my colleagues would praise that. And I was advancing and things were really, really great. Nobody would know. I don't think anybody really knew except um, what I, except for me, yeah. right? Nobody ever had a conversation saying, hey, you're getting too too risky or like you're saying too many dangerous things. I, I wasn't doing that. Yeah. I was just kind of keeping my mouth shut at church and at school until the temple recommend thing. And then I was in meetings and I said, Hey, are you, do you guys notice that these things aren't right? And, and that was the first time I think I publicly started talking. Jason, did they, still, did you, when you started speaking up against about that? And to me that, that as I'm listening to you feels so blatantly inappropriate and um, not protective of the faculty at BYU and, and unchristlike, quite frankly, that as a faculty member, you were not protected by confidentiality in your own atonement activating processes. If you wanted to go and get the support of a bishop, who I don't see a bishop personally as a judge in Israel, I see a bishop more as someone who is that shepherding embodied figure. If they're, if they're, again, this is, if it's done right, yeah. They're the face of, of, of how can somebody hear what we're suffering through, no matter what that thing is and embody a mirror of love. And if there is a fear that there is a, a professional consequence for somebody's expression of humanity, then that's, that's not okay. That is, that is harmful yeah. to, to em- employees of a, an institution that basically punishes you for your being human and actually having the humility to walk through their prescribed process for atonement healing that there, there's so many levels of wrong in that. Yeah. Anyhow, I'm sorry. Yeah. I go off. I, I digress. Yeah. But I, how, how did, when, when you started actually having, finding your voice there, anybody, did anybody else have the courage to say, yeah, that doesn't feel good. Or was it just still more of like either people that didn't see the danger because they were so integrated in or people that maybe saw it, but were too frightened to talk, which, what, what did you experience there? Um, well, if I'm really honest, I didn't talk about anything until after I knew I was going to be okay leaving. Ah, Um, because you know, you, you mentioned being a student in 1993 and having a September 6th, Mm -hmm. that was devastating to, to them, but it sent waves. It sent a clear signal that anybody that works for the church, you know, and, and, you know, Elder Packers three, like the greatest threats to the church are, you know, LGBT movement and intellectuals and feminism. Like, yep. gosh, those are the three things that could bless the church the most. Yep. But um, you knew you couldn't speak. And then with the Temple Recommend updates, it was like codified in policy. Wow. That if, if you had, like, there was five additional Temple Recommend questions that we were supposed to be asked. Wow. And they were specific. Do you agree with the doctrine of the family and marriage? Do you support the brethren? Um, and then there was one about pornography that gave timelines and stuff. So if anybody struggles with that, why on earth would you go to your bishop if you know it can make you lose your job? You wouldn't. And so if you're if, yeah. if you're an adjunct professor, you have no safety. They just don't renew you. And there was a wave of people that were fired when this came out. 
if you're like me, that was, they call it CFS or continuing faculty status. That's mm -hmm. BYU's way of, of tenure. Gotcha. It starts a process. And so I didn't speak out because I just, I had too many students and, and colleagues that had bishops that didn't respond in the way that you just described. Yeah. That I wasn't sure, even though I felt good about my bishop, but I will say when I knew that I was going to be leaving and it was public, then I started to be more open in meetings. And there were usually two things happened. There'd be one or two people that would speak up and they would say, I agree with that. This is a struggle for me. Yeah. And then they would kind of explain how they do their mental gymnastics to work it out. Mm -hmm. Or people afterwards would come up to me and be like, I struggle with the same thing and I just can't say it. Or they would send me a text and say, yes. And we would talk about how we can kind of deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, we talked with our state president after we knew we were moving and he was the epitome of what I would dream of a state president being. Oh, wow. He said, you know, if you were staying, I'm going to put my arms around you and I'm going to be the protection. So nobody at BYU is going to know about anything that you struggle with because you and me, we're going to walk it together. He was, but I, I wish I would have talked to him three years ago. But I didn't know. You don't ever know until you get in that situation. You know, one of their their responsibilities is to protect the church. And one of the one of the ways that some people just feel like they're protecting the church is they get rid of people like me that are struggling. And yeah. but thankfully, our state president, I mean, he is he was amazing. And I just I mean, the minute he did that, I just broke down and was weeping and never I was like, I just felt so much love from him and from the savior and that's, I feel like what we should have. But if we have policies that make it so you can't have that experience with your bishop because you're, you don't know what they're going to do. We're preventing people from feeling God's love. It's not right. And, and from great leaders, like helping us and shepherding us, which feels so Christian and so Christ-like. I think, I don't think it's intentional. No. I think it's an unintended consequence of the desire to have really strong faculty at BYU. But it, this is a this is a consequence that comes that, that hurts a lot of people. Well, and what, so, you what you described that I'm so loving your experience with your stake president and God bless him. I think that's really oh, yeah. beautiful. And Amazing. yet the fact that he it's interesting, Jason, he chose he was put in the same position that you were consistently put in as a faculty member that yeah. they had to either um, protect and love the wounded or defend the institution. And I'm so grateful that he protected and loved you, but I don't like the fact that he had to even make that choice. Yeah. That's the problem here. That's yeah. the problem. And so, and I think that's why you and I are wanting to have this conversation, right? That's why we're here yeah. because you and I are, I mean, my, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question, but just to be very clear, you're still active in the church. You've moved to the Midwest. You're kind of a fellow Midwesterner with me. And yeah. um, you're still you're still in the church. Why why is it that we have these? Why are we opening this kind of a pain, painful conversation up between you and me? And I can I can weigh into, but I'd love to hear you um, share first. I would love for us to find there is the space there for people to be authentic and to struggle, um, but we're not comfortable with it as an institution and as a people. And I feel more comfortable now because I don't have my whole livelihood hanging over me. Yeah. Right. And it's not just a job with, with if you're working as a, a faculty member at BYU, it's your whole life you've put into your career. Yeah. And it's not just that you prioritize your career, but what you do is a part of you. 
So just to be able to say quit and go find another job, it doesn't work that way. And when you do music, it's hard to find one job in your life, let alone multiple. And so um, it's not that simple, right? And so I don't know. I I haven't spoken publicly until I guess I'm talking to you right now. And there's a part of me that's terrified of it. So I don't know what's going to happen. But there's an actually most of me, though, feels really comfortable because I feel like I'm in a healthier place than I was six months or a year ago. Um, anyway, I think I got off of your question, but yeah, I, I no. think people need to hear our stories. I, I know I benefited from so many people that share their stories about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they were a person of color or LGBT or a woman or, or a man that was, mar- anybody that was marginalized, their stories helped me and helped me to learn and to grow and to expand. And so I want to talk to maybe there's somebody out there struggling in the same way and they can know that one, they're not alone yes. and that there are, there is hope that we can still try to like maintain belief and grow, but also, I don't know, but also stay. You're describing Jason, the, what we do and what we have covenanted to do as the body of Christ, right? We are here. We are, we, you and me, we are the church. The church is not the, I think sometimes we we get this confused that the church is not the leadership of the church. The church is you and me. The church is the people on the ground. The churches are are the children in primary. The church are these beautiful trumpet playing freshmen that you got (laughs) to work with, right? Like this is the church. And so if we are trying to heal the wounded body of the church, we have to have a voice. We have to speak out and talk about the pain. We have to talk about what happens and some unintended consequences that may not be well understood as these doctrine and policies and, and, and these, these um, ideas are disseminated from, from human beings that mean well, but do not necessarily understand the intensity and the pain that is um, activated when we are in an institution where we feel too frightened to speak. What we have talked about um, on a lot of levels is evidence of some spiritual abuse that goes on in our institution. And I think it's okay to actually call it what it is because the only way we can heal something and change something is if we see it and recognize it. And then another thing that I think is interesting, and I want to just point out, Jason, is that interestingly, if we think about, and this is really true of, I think I would hope any sort of a, a religious or a faith program or an institution, if in fact the purpose of gathering and of being parts of these institutions is to bring us closer to our parents in heaven and the savior, how beautiful is it that through your meandering, complex, somewhat heartbreaking story, you also have become a stronger, closer, more low, open and loving follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You have had to grow and stretch and boundary yourself and speak up and make really hard life-changing decisions for yourself and your family. Um, and the church, in fact, has been extremely instrumental in that, not probably in the ways that you had anticipated when you got the inspiration or the, the uh, impression to, to go to, to Provo, but in, 
interesting ways, it is doing its work in making you over in the image of God. How crazy is that? How interesting, right? Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I would say I'm much more proud of the Christian that I am now than I ever was when I was at my most active and faithful, Amen. according to the orthodoxy standard. Yep. I feel like I, my, my instincts and my, my empathy and my love to anybody is way better than yeah. I ever thought it was when I thought I was. Yeah. When you thought you had it all so, figured out. <laughs> yeah. And now I don't know anything, but I'm more proud of, of that. Yes. Um, because I feel like God's more proud of it. You know, I, I still feel so connected to heavenly father and, and to the idea that I'm a son of heavenly parents. And I hope my heavenly mother's proud of me for like loving her children more, yes. you know, and, and I, I would think that she is that that feels good in my heart. And, and that's where I want to kind of go and, and be heading is in that kind of direction. Yes. One that feels more Christ-like. And it's, I would never have guessed that that would be where I was heading because for, I mean, for the last three years, it's been the hardest struggle of my whole life to go through this and, and kind of have that break with the, the institution in the way that it can hold, hold you, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a different kind of relationship that you um, have now with the institution. And the beautiful thing is, uh, I think it's a more healthy relationship and it's a relationship that's actually enabling you to be more directly in contact with your own, with God them, themselves and with Jesus Christ. Yeah. And in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm really marveling at how You've been through this and now you're here to tell the story. As a trauma therapist, I'm always um, on the lookout for people who have been through um, real and intense pain who are able to tell their story in a very coherent way. And that has been what you have been able to do today. What has that been like for you, Jason, to sort of walk us through all of these um, ups and downs and sort of share with us how you have come to who you are today? What's that been like for you? It feels like it's been um, healthy. It feels reflective. It's, I feel like for for most of the last three years, this whole struggle has been like right in front of my face. And I and it's been in everything that I do from like when I'm eating breakfast to like going to church or to performing a concert. This is like, it's been everywhere and it's been soul crushing. Yeah. But I, I really feel hopeful and happy and I feel healing because for a long time I was really angry and confused and that I don't feel those emotions as strong or as much anymore. I, um, anyway, talking about it, it, it's actually been surprising because I didn't know how I would do. Um, I'm glad I haven't gotten emotional, although there's nothing wrong with that. Usually on this topic, I do get really emotional. And I feel like I've been fortunate to, to not do that, to mm -hmm. be able to just try to have perspective. Um, the other word that I would use is I want to thank you because it feels validating. It feels, mm -hmm. I went so long to, without talking about this, that I felt like, um, like a wounded dick dog. I, I, I didn't want to like trust people. I, I couldn't trust people about this, but thank you for making it safe to be able to talk about it and to see things when you usually when, when I've experienced today, when I said something, you follow up and 
it's been helpful and made me feel good. And I appreciate that because welcome. it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff. And, um, anyway, I, it's been validating. I appreciate you're, that. You're very, very welcome. I, I am so grateful for your ability to articulate this to people. I think a lot of what we are noticing, and you've seen this because you're in one of my small groups, is that it's a, it's a lonely place to be on this kind of journey, especially in a, a community where uh, speaking up is um, sometimes there's, there's shame, there's punishment, there's um, some negative consequences sometimes. But yet, once again, we circle back to the thing we've sort of been talking about throughout our time together, which is when we have the courage and we feel even the slightest bit of safety, sometimes we look around and recognize that there are more people that are where we are that need us and want us to have our voice, find our voice, because they it helps them find theirs too. And you're describing that crisis can, in fact, turn into a faith expansion kind of experience that you find yourself closer to God than you have ever been before. And oftentimes when we're in the beginning of a process like this, it feels devastating. You said soul crushing, and yet here you are in this sort of soul expanding open place of calm. Like, yeah, you're still on the hero's journey, but you found, you found your footing once again, and you're a different man than you used to be in so many beautiful, good, progressive ways. And, and you can share that with everyone around you, this man that you are becoming um, as this experience has unfolded and you'll continue to do that. So I can't thank you enough, Jason, for your courage and your willingness to, to share this experience. I guarantee that in their own various ways, other people are going to be benefiting from your ability to, to share your story and your experience. So thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. Yeah. For those of you who are interested in joining Jason and me in one of these small groups, uh, we meet every week. They are space limited. So if this is something that you would like to learn more about, get in touch with me at info at ValerieHammaker.com. This space, these small groups are really for people like me and Jason who are wanting to make a coherent narrative and make sense of what we are going through, what we have been going through. Some folks are um, in the thick of the, the part where they don't know what's going on, where they're disoriented and alone. Other people are making sense of what have, they have gone through and they're a little further on. But we're here for each other. We're helping each other. We're mentoring each other. We're guiding each other. We're encouraging and validating each other in this faith expansion experience. So I just want to invite any of you who want to give this a try to please reach out to me um, on that email address or at Instagram at Valerie Hammaker. No, no, no. I always say that wrong <laughs> at Latter-day Struggles podcast. And um, please rate and review this podcast, everyone. It is so meaningful to us to have those rating and reviews, not only because they just um, are validating to us in this um, scary speaking up kind of experience for us, but also it really helps other people feel that we are a trustworthy source for faith development and faith transformation in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Your, your, your stories and your experiences of listening help other people find us and feel safe, which is our most um, important component of this podcast. So thanks for being with us and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.